Feeling better? Looking better. Making life better. It's Life Tips. Life, life, life. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life, life, tips. life tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back to the Life Tip Show, everyone. Byron White here with Tom Rath. Tom, welcome. Thanks so much. It's great to be talking with you. Appreciate you being here. It's an honor, frankly. Let's just say that right off the bat. <laughs> you have a, a wonderful new book called Are You Fully Charged? Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life. What was the inspiration for trying to get into this battery charging <laughs> business? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, a big part of it for me is you know, I've written a lot of books on workplace engagement and health and well-being and I'm still trying to figure out how do I apply some of these things and all this great research in my own day-to-day life. And so um, a lot of good works emerged recently talking about how the phenomenon of thinking about your daily well-being and your experience of how you're doing in the moment is pretty important. And we didn't really realize that because it wasn't as easy to assess and capture people on their cell phones and with wearables and the like. But with all the work that's been coming out, it turns out there are some pretty practical ways to not only make sure that we all have good days, but what I think is most important is uh, kind of turning that lens towards other people and figuring out how can we help to do something that makes a difference for another person today. There was a wonderful quote by uh, Daniel Pink book, and it was really pretty interesting. I'm just going to read it real quickly. This is arguably Raf's best. He has written a book that is readable as it is rigorous and as profound as it is practical. Tell us how you sort of you know, develop this unique approach to, to solving uh, the problems that the books helps to. How do you think of and imagine the problems that we're having in our lives and how to craft a story around that? Is there a unique approach you have to developing these unique angles you've had in, that's helped you sell more than 6 million copies of your books? You know, the first thing I that comes to mind when I'm thinking about how I can just make a difference with books and videos and all kinds of things we're working on right now is that I, I'm someone who just reads every day um, as much as I can get my hands on. And what I've learned from all of my research and reading is that there's so much good information and science out there um, that I can't even keep up with it. I don't think anyone can. But the challenge is that a lot of this great research and experiments and information is deep down in individual silos. And it's not uh, kind of bubbling up to the surface to the degree that it's practical enough to help somebody change a habit or something they're doing tomorrow. And so I, I spend most of my time trying to synthesize all this research and reading that I'm doing and figure out how could that translate into a piece of advice or a story that might help someone to think about a decision they make a little bit differently later on today. Hmm. Would you agree that in the last 10 years, we've seen some real breakthroughs with neuroscience and, and understanding how the brain works and how we are motivated? Do you, do you A, agree with that? And B, how do you tap into that new discovery and that new learning about uh, certainly the unconscious mind and how we think and our, how our emotions are a big driver, not, our, not so much our rational thinking? Yeah, you know, it's a great point that I think of all the fields that I've followed and studied over the years, some of the most recent work from that emerging area of behavioral economics in particular about how we make decisions 
and why we make decisions in a way that, as you pointed out, is not that conscious. Is There's so much rich information emerging there. I mean, even if you take those concepts to an area like health and diet, it turns out that the best way to make healthier decisions might not be telling yourself that it might give you heart disease or diabetes down the road, but structuring your environment better in advance so you make better default decisions. So, you know, if the if there's a bowl of M&Ms or chocolate-covered pretzels on my counter when I walk upstairs tonight, I will eat everything sitting out right then and there, whereas if there are apples sitting out or nuts to snack on, I'll eat what's sitting there. And it's, it's about crafting environments and defaults so that there's a better chance of making the right decision in many cases. And so, yes, I do think a lot of the science emerging from there can be really important and influential in helping to guide. Huh. Um, the book taps into and, and dives deeply into, you know, the keys that influence our, our daily well-being. Could you define well-being for me before we tap into those three things and get deeper? What does well-being mean to you? Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big question. I've sat around it when I was working at Gallup with some of the world's top scientists and wrestled with that. And we use the word well-being as the broadest descriptor of all the things that are important to how we think about and experience life. So we define it very, very broadly. And normally when researchers have done that and then they study well-being, you're kind of looking at the sum of someone's life essentially and saying over 20, 30 years, how would you rate things overall? And that's so that's how most well-being research that I've been a part of and studied in the past has looked at that definition. But what's interesting is in the last five, 10 years, more and more scientists are conducting experiments around well-being where they're asking people, what were you doing at 8.15 in the morning? Who were you with? How much did you enjoy? What were you doing at 10.15 when a little device buzzes and pings you? Who were you with? How much did you enjoy it? And what's fascinating to me is that when you measure our well-being on a moment-to-moment daily basis, yields very different discoveries than asking people about their lives overall. If you ask people to reflect on 30 years, how much money they've made over those 30 years is almost a perfect predictor of how satisfied they will say they were with their lives overall. Hmm. So if you ask people, for example, about their daily experience, four of the five countries with the highest daily experience levels in the whole world are in the bottom half of GDP per capita or national wealth. So, And you will see this at an individual income level too, where money doesn't matter anywhere near as much if you want to have a good experience today and tomorrow as it does when you're reflecting over a lifetime. I know you actually want people to stop pursuing this notion of happiness, which is rather fascinating and interesting. But how do you distinguish between this concept of happiness in your life versus the experiences you're having in life and the richness you have? How do you parse those two distinctions apart from one another? Yeah, it's it's been interesting for me to see recently how a lot of good work and thinking has emerged on these topics where you know, we used to think of happiness and well-being and meaning as being very similar, but it turns out there's some important differences. And if you just look at the difference between happiness, which um, is about how you do, you're doing personally in many definitions, and meaning, which is, I think implicit in the word meaning is that you're doing something that is also to the benefit of another person or a community or the world. And when you look at it that way, even if your goal is just to be happy for yourself, the easiest way to get there is to go do something good for another person. And so that's where I think a lot of this pursuit of one's own happiness has been a little bit misguided in that 
if I spend all my time trying to make myself happy, that results in a deep inward focus that can actually cause a lot of problems over time. Whereas even if I had a friend who was really in a rut, the last thing I should tell him if I was giving him advice is to go try and make himself happier. The better advice would be to go do something that makes a difference for another person, and eventually that does bring you around faster. Are there any critical elements of, of, of our life's journey that you think is the root of us going wrong? wrong. <laughs> where, where, where do we have things clearly, the, the, the pathway, where are we, how are we being led down the wrong path in life, do you think, in your observations from the book? Well, the one, the one that stuck out to me in, in particular is that, you know, we just keep telling ourselves that if we do another 80-hour work week and um, make another 10%, and we keep doing that each year for 10 years, eventually we're going to be a lot happier and be able to do more with our families and so forth. But it turns out we just accept a longer commute, get less time with the people who matter, work ourselves into the ground, put our health behind, and we never really get to that point where we can relax and enjoy their families. And then so quickly, it's 10, 20, 30 years down the road, and you forgot to think about that daily experience and really creating better days for your kids and your colleagues and the people who matter most. So that, that's why I've gotten so kind of wound up about the importance of this daily experience because hmm. I think we keep perpetuating this myth that, oh, you always have tomorrow, and you really don't. Tomorrow goes away pretty quickly, just like today did. But let's, let's go through at least one or two of the three uh, keys uh, that influence our, our daily well-being, um, and let's start with meaning, and then we'll take, we'll take a break in a second. But let's handle meaning. Meaning kind of surprised me that this, this concept you suggest of doing something that benefits another person, what is it about doing something for someone else that becomes a critical element to, to our, our, our happiness and satisfaction and our well-being? You know, there's something about genuine action that's kind of driven from internal intrinsic motivations to try and make a difference for another person or for the world that seems to elevate us in experiments and in people's reports and accounts above this notion of kind of being wrapped up in ourselves. And when we're acting and doing things that are more altruistic, that's that's one of the best ways to pick up your immediate well-being. Another thing that really caught my attention from this work on meaning is I'd always thought of things like meaning and mission and purpose in life as big grand concepts that descend from the heavens or they take 10 or 20 years to find. And it turns out that when you really get down to what creates meaning in people's lives, it's small daily acts. And it's about making a little bit of meaningful progress in something you're working on on a day-to-day basis. I want to mention something to you from from a, a practice uh, that that I was involved in for some time, namely the practice of of teaching people how to sell. Um, I was a director of worldwide sales for for Aquin, a, a company that had actually purchased my first company, and I brought this technique, which I simply called Socratic selling techniques, out to a, a, the marketplace, a number of different offices, and did some some full scale training. And I began doing performing a cold call in front. of anybody they would they would tell me to call so i would call an office and i would always begin with the following question can i get your help for a second and i would pause and every time i asked for someone's help i never got a no i never got no i'm not going to help you does that fit with your concept of meaning in that there's something inside of us that we actually want to help other people and we feel good doing it? Is that what you're getting at when you, when you talk about the importance of meaning to our, to our well-being? 
I bet it is. You know, it's fascinating the way you described that. I hadn't thought about it in that exact way, but it probably is that kind of innate nature that we all have to want to help another human being when asked uh-huh. that results in a lot of the connections that create meaning and the things that make our work purposeful and meaningful in life because they're driven by that. I mean, unless, I don't know, maybe there are some people, I was going to say, unless you work for you're making cigarettes every day or something, but I, there maybe there's some people who do that with real meaning and passion because they think they're serving someone. Um, but in most cases, even if you're, I mean, I've talked to people who have worked in cleaning hospitals and in call centers, and when they're able to connect the dots between the fact that they turned around an irate customer and that person's day is no longer as bad as it was going to be, and they'll have better interactions with their family members when they get home, it's those little things throughout the day when you take someone from either a negative five to a zero, or better yet, from a plus one to a plus five in terms of their overall daily experience. It's those little contributions throughout the day that really do compile and accumulate and make a difference over time. You know, define interaction for us and in, in, in what you're trying to get at there. Yeah, I, what's been fascinating to me is that interaction is about anything in terms of, you know, when you break it down, I've talked with some scientists about this before, when you break it down, there are kind of 19,200 little three-second uh, splits in our day, in a waking day, 19,200 moments. And a lot of those involve interactions with another people, another person. And when you inter- interact with another human being, it's usually either a little more positive or a little bit more negative. It's rare that it's neutral or in between. So something as simple as walking into a retail store and the person in front of you either makes a decision to hold that door for you and smile or they let it shut in your face. That is that, that those little splits add up. And um, it turns out that bad interactions dramatically outweigh positive ones. They just carry a heavier load. And so as a product mm-hmm. of that, it depends on what environment. In the workplace, you need at least three positive interactions to outweigh every one negative on a work team. In marriages, you need at least five positives to outweigh every one negative because it carries a little more weight. So in general, based on all the science that I've studied, we need at least 80% of our interactions to be more positive than negative just in order to kind of stay above that neutral line in terms of how our days are going. Do you find that some people are wired and built better than others for interactive experiences? Absolutely. Um, I, 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 I feel like I'm living proof of this because I, um, <laughs> I just sit around and admire almost everyone else in terms of their ability to connect and interact more smoothly in social settings than I do. Um, but it's, I've studied personality quite a bit through the work that we've done on StrengthsFinder at Gallup. And, I mean, there are some people who just thrive and are naturals at a cocktail party and making new connections. And as much as I wish I could do that and admire it, um, it takes a lot more work and effort for me. And um, there are other people who do a better job building a few close in-depth relationships, which can be just as important and just as meaningful. So it's, it's not that everybody needs to do one thing or follow one script, but we've got to figure out how, based on who we are in terms of our own personalities and individually, what are the things that we can do um, to make better connections whether we're more introverted or extroverted or somewhere in between. And, and on that subject, I can't help but follow up. I have uh, just ordered uh, copies of Strength Finder 2.0 for every employee in my company, and we're all going to read it together and go through it together and try to identify. Do you have any tips and advice for us before we take a station break here um, uh, for, for how to use your book in a group-like setting like that to, to, to reap the greatest benefits? I think just having a that conversation as a group is the first and probably most important step. You can go through um, 
the world's best uh, personality assessment. And if you just kind of look at it for yourself, it might be an interesting aha, but it really doesn't do anything to improve Mm -hmm. your life and others and understanding until you have that group conversation. So I think going around with a group and talking about what you think you do best and how it can apply to the mission you're on and the people you're trying to serve is a really good place to start. And then some of the cool research from uh, universities where students have been taking strengths finders part of a program recently is they, we found that they need to have at least five conversations a year with people about their strengths. And that's really a tipping point for where it makes a big difference in terms of their confidence and their direction with their careers and what they're trying to do. So it's, it's all about the dialogue. Got it. Very cool. Let's take a, take a break, everybody, and back with the concept of energy um, and how that fits in with the influences uh, that will make your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Back, back in just a minute, everyone. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts. But did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. When you started your business, you first listened to your professors. Now that your business is growing and gaining ground, you only seek out professionals. PPC Professionals, an industry leader for highly optimized search marketing campaigns with over 30 years of combined management experience. Our professional approach to every campaign helps you find every avenue of revenue so that you can not only stay ahead of your competitors, but get a return on your investment and increase your bottom line. PPC Professionals, personal, professional, PPC services. PPCProfessionals.com. Creating a website is not an easy task, and there are so many companies to choose from. How do I know which one is best? It's a big jump making your site mobile-friendly, generating sales, and answering questions with no struggles. If you want to come out on top, you need Frog on Top. At Frog on Top, we take the time to make your site generate money, not just look good. Our team of experts are WordPress savvy, and our customer service is leaps ahead. See why we say our websites are designed better by leaps and bounds by going to frogontop.com. Frog on Top, your one-stop solution for the web. Frogontop.com. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point, click, and it's live in real time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point, click, and it's live in real time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point, click, and it's live in real time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. And now back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back, Tom. So great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This concept of energy, making choices that improve your mental and physical health. Let's talk about 
energy to me energy is is usually thought of as a drain it takes energy to do something but how do we charge energy to help us make better decisions why is a higher energy level and by the way what do you define energy for us i guess would be a good starting point um where do we get that energy how do we charge ourselves up and then how will it help us be better yeah this has been a kind of a primary focus for me for the last four or five years, because one of the things I've noticed is when we, and I asked this in a survey recently, 10,000 people, and just 11% said they had a great deal of energy yesterday. So we're, we're operating nowhere near our full capacity. And that's what, what's most striking to me, is, especially in a work context, is that, I mean, we're all kind of getting by day to day, but um, when you really look at if we want to be the best leaders and salespeople and managers and teachers and spouses, there's no way that we can be as effective for other people as we need to be if we're not doing the basics, if we're not getting a good night's sleep that gives us a fresh start on the next day, if we're not getting a little bit of activity throughout the day, not just exercising, but being active throughout the day, so we've got that energy at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And if we're not making the right dietary choices, we'll be wiped out by late day anyhow. And so one of the biggest learnings for me from an energy standpoint is uh, two, I guess, two quick things. One is we need to put our own health and energy first, even if it's just to serve other people, because that's how we can be our best at what we do. And the second one is that uh, we need to connect the right short-term motivation. So when I can connect uh, a light and healthy salad for lunch instead of a cheeseburger milkshake with having more energy at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and being a better dad at 5 o'clock with my kids, that makes it easier to make the decision than knowing that I have a long-term risk of cancer or heart disease or whatever it might be. Energy, however, is is created by the mind. Would you not agree with that? I mean, we're not talking about food intake or higher energy level. You know, all, but maybe you could explain that difference of, of define energy for us. What's the source of energy that you're referring to? Well, you know, yeah, in the context of the, what what I've been working on here for daily well-being. Energy does start with the physical piece because it's, I mean, if, if you get four fewer hours of sleep tonight, I mean, that can be the, that's about the equivalent of having the impairment of being legally drunk in most states from an impairment standpoint. And so mm-hmm. you can barely even get off the ground for a day if you get four or five hours of sleep. But yet so many of us have grown up with needing sleep being seen as a sign of weakness or the first expense that you cut. And so we got, we, we do need to turn around some of those basics like sleeping. And another big systemic problem, even bigger than sleep, I would argue, is that we've essentially engineered all the activity out of our lives from a physical standpoint. So we know that we can click a button and someone from Amazon shows up at our door tomorrow morning and we can drive our car around the Target parking lot 15 times so we don't have to walk an extra 100 steps. And <laughs> we need to print it right by our desk instead of having to go down the hall and so forth. And so... Even if you do work out 30 minutes a day, that kind of inactivity is so much more insidious than people think based on all the research that I've read. So it does start with some of those basic physical things and eating another big piece of it. But then it's about those moments and how do you make sure that you don't have big stressors that are overriding your day, for example, and that you're getting enough social interaction from a mental standpoint to have a really good day. So, But at a basic level, I think there's a tendency tendency, especially for people who are high achievers and they're busy, to put everyone else's needs and health ahead of their own. And the more I dove into this topic, even if your goal is just to be the highest achiever in your workplace or to be the most caring and serving nurse, I've done all work with nurses who put everybody else's health first, 
you really do need to start with some of those basic physical and mental elements to make sure that you can be your best tomorrow. Have you seen productivity increase radically with people that are in control of their energy level? And, you know, explain to us the best possible opportunity we have if we can learn uh, what you've prepared for us and, and put it to work. What's the best case scenario and how are people different when they experience and practice what you're suggesting? Yeah, the, the good news is when you start to focus on some of the little things that really create that energy throughout the day, it, it really is an entirely different experience in terms of how you feel at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I used to sit through meetings and um, spend, I don't know, 8, 10 hours a day when I started tracking this five years ago, just sitting down all day. And I mean, even something as simple as getting up and down and moving around throughout the day. And now I've, I've spent the last three years where I'm in my office on a treadmill desk. It's hard to describe how lousy I feel on days when I'm forced to sit down in airplanes or meetings for a full day now because I know how different it can be. And so I think the the root of there is it's, it's, it's a very different experience. And what's been encouraging for me to see is where leaders in workplaces in particular have taken the initiative to say, I'm going to put all of our health first. We want people who get enough sleep and can have adjustable hours so they can do that. We want people to be able to work if they're sitting up or standing down or, or sorry, standing up or sitting down or to go on walking meetings. And we want people to have a lot of healthy options available here from a food standpoint. And mm-hmm. when the more leaders start to talk about that, they really set pretty powerful social trends in motion. I'm, I'm really increasingly hopeful that leaders in big organizations in particular here in the United States can help us to fix the big social and economic problem we have of poor health and low energy today. What, what, what trends are you seeing companies do? You mentioned a few of them, healthy eating, uh, you know, walking meetings, standing up as an option, having a workstation where you're actually standing versus sitting. Um, are those becoming optional by default? Are you think there are more leaders, you know, tooting this horn? And by the way, what's your feeling on this open office environment, which so many companies have, have gone to now, where there's very little downtime or quiet time or ability to, you know, shut doors and concentrate and think? It's always like a distraction and, and something going on, uh, you know, around you. What's your take on that as far as uh, in, in, in the other 25 things I just asked you? <laughs> Sorry about that. No, it's, it's, a, it, no, it's, an, it's, a, it's a very important question to me. I don't, I don't think we've spent enough time looking at the structural um, incentives and challenges on the other side of the coin here. Because what for someone, I, I mentioned I'm a little bit more introverted and um, for someone with my personality style to be thrown in the middle of an open office environment where all I have is noise on every side of me, I mean, I, I get to try that every weekend. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and it, it doesn't work for me in terms of being able to get productive new things done. Different personalities need different work environments, and I think we need to create workplaces and spaces where people who do need a lot of social interaction have hubs all over where they can interact regularly and people who need some calls quiet time for thought can do that as well. And also, I mean, I, I think more and more workplaces have a, not, not only do they have responsibility, but it, it's good for, it'll be good for their productivity as well. I've seen the evidence of it in a, a new film we're working on here that when 
companies provide ways for people to stand while they're working and sit and alternate, and they provide ways for people to walk, have meetings on treadmills throughout the day. It, there's a little adjustment curve there, but productivity goes up and well-being goes up, and it really makes a difference. So my hunch is that the workplace of the future um, will not be built around a default where we basically have to spend uh, eight to ten hours sitting down in order to get work done throughout the day. Yeah, I mean, food's really the fuel that either uh, gives away or takes energy throughout the day. And What's fascinating to me in that regard is the fact that Often, I mean, there are things you get, you get a quick rush from something that's filled with sugar and probably relatively unhealthy for you. But then an hour later, two hours later, three hours later, you really take the hit from that. And you might get, there's what one scientist and we quote in the book calls it a high fat hangover if you eat the wrong foods for lunch in the middle of the afternoon. And so what's been interesting is how do you help people to connect what they're eating for breakfast, what they're doing for lunch with how much more willpower they could have later in the day, how much better they could feel. And my hunch is that one, setting better defaults, so you have the right things available in a workplace, the right foods um, and healthy options there, and two, helping people to see how their choices do connect with short-term outcomes instead of the longer-term stuff, those are probably the two most uh, effective motivators to help people uh, eat the right things and improve their health on a daily basis. What role do you think technology either will play or is playing now in making sure that you're fully charged? Boy, that's it's, that's a, a big question and a great one. And technology is the ultimate double-edged sword. It's got, I, I mean, in, in one way, I had, uh, I, I shut off all the alerts so I don't see what's coming out of my phone on a moment-to-moment basis just so I can focus and concentrate because, you know, everything's fighting for attention nowadays. But when I checked my email this morning, I saw last night if I would have had that stuff on, I would have had two separate alerts. And one alert would have told me that Kim Kardashian had her second child, and that was USA Today breaking news. And then this morning I, w- I would have had a USA Today breaking news alert that used to be reserved for bombings in Baghdad about Bruce Jenner being on the cover of a magazine. And so it's now most people leave all these things on by default. And so we're distracted by that in the middle of what could be a really important conversation with a loved one, with someone at work. And so technology, people are unlocking their smartphone screens about 115 times a day on average. And that's completely invaded the quality of our conversations and relationships. So we all have a responsibility to take that back and say, if you're in the middle of a real meaningful conversation, what emergencies do deserve to break into that conversation because it's so important and then to shut off the other distractions. So that's one side of that where technology has been a challenge and I think it's going to have to get better because we've reached an inflection point where all of us can see the way it's invading too far into our lives. The other edge of the equation is that technology is helping us to make better and healthier decisions in the moment. So I've spent a lot of time um, studying and doing research around how wearables and technology can help people to move more in particular. And now there are a lot of good devices helping people to have a lot more awareness about sleeping more and better with better conditions. And I think pretty soon we're going to get to the point where um, spectrometers and other technology can help us to quickly scan food without even having to manually log things so we make better dietary decisions throughout the day. So I think my hunch is that in the next 10 years, especially specific to physical health, technology will give us so much better self-awareness that it could lead to some pretty powerful changes on that side of the blade, essentially. Hmm. <clears throat> I, your book is quite interesting in 
how you've chosen to launch it with quite a few different variables. You have a full-length movie. You've done some interviews uh, with some top social scientists. You have a children's book that you're accompanying. There's an app that's part of your book and, of course, a website as well. Our, tell us about your progressive experimentation here with regards to this book and, and what the inspiration was. Yeah, you know, it's been, it's been a lot to deal with, frankly, um, in terms of managing a lot of different streams here lately. But it's been fun because one of the things that I've learned over the years is that um, if, you, if you just have a, a nonfiction book that pulls together a lot of things, that that's that can get a conversation started. But um, with one of the books that I, the first book I worked on, How Full Is Your Bucket, um, more than more well over a decade ago now, and. That book, we ended up doing an extension of Health Holds Your Bucket for Kids that now is used in thousands of classrooms all over the world. And I get notes every day from uh, schools who are using it as a part of semester-wide initiatives and so forth. And that's where it's really taken hold and is a part of what an entire school is doing, a part of what an entire family is doing, in addition to the, the adults who are usually reading the nonfiction business book and so forth. And so I've seen great synergy there over the years. So we're trying to do that again with this new kids called the rechargeables eat move sleep that uh, we're just launching right now and then uh, by fall we'll have a documentary out titled fully charged that fits with the last few books and theme as well and uh, for that documentary as you mentioned we've gone around and not only interviewed the top social scientists on the topics of meaning and interactions and energy but we've also followed the stories of people of several ages and generations and in different parts of the country as they create real transformations in these areas and I know there's a whole generation today who would, it, it's a lot uh, easier, lower path of resistance for them to uh, click a button on their Netflix subscription or download something on iTunes than it is to get through a whole nonfiction book. So we're just trying to find new ways to kind of meet people where they're eager to learn. Tom, you've, you've never really had a failure with any of the books that you've published, seemingly. Oh, I could write a book on my failures in life. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe failures in life, but not in not in what you've chosen to put all the eggs in the basket in with these wonderful books. Do the, do the concepts and ideas? I mean, clearly you you you're focusing on 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 us as human beings and and, and making us better, and that's that's remarkable in itself. But it's not easy to come up with concepts that can be adapted by entire schools and and motivate people to send you handwritten notes regularly saying, "Hey, I just want to thank you." I mean, how, what is your your, your angle uh, of study, if you will. Um, I know you're a voracious reader. We talked about that before the interview. But what is your angle? How do you identify these pain points and problems and, and find m ways to roll them together in a story that might motivate us to be better? Yeah, it's, you know, synthesizing a lot of the things that I'm learning into a, a story that makes sense for people in that regard, it, it's really the most difficult part for me where, um, I mean, honestly, trying to boil the basic elements of energy and eating, moving, sleeping down for kids in a kid's book, because it's, I mean, you, you have one twentieth as many words or less, that's even more difficult. So it's always the, the shortest assignments that are the most challenging for me personally. And so um, I think that the central theme that's always motivated my work is, I mean, as you mentioned, it's, I get when I get a note from someone about how you know, they've seen a real difference in their kids' learning and behavior because a teacher read How Full Is Your Bucket for Kids, and that really helped them to think about their behaviors and interactions with other people. 
that's the kind of thing that motivates me and keeps me going and notes like that that led to the creation of this most recent children's book, for example. And so that's, I guess that's what I was kind of trying to keep my ear to the ground on what I'm hearing from readers and the challenges they're having and then also to monitor. And when you look at the health, the, the last book I worked on before this was called Eat, Move, Sleep, How Small Choices Lead to Big Changes. And that was the product of some of my own experiences and learnings and challenges and helping people with their health and my awareness of the big national problem where we kind of have a, a health crisis that's not sustainable and hasn't been for some time now. So it's most of it's listening to individual readers and trying to think about what could improve the lives of someone I've met or known in a real practical way tomorrow. And then I also try and keep a little bit of an eye on these bigger and broader uh, business and organizational and societal problems as well. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show. Let me just ask a couple final questions. Number one, how can people get a hold of you and find your, your, your many illustrious books? And, and who would you like to get a hold of you? Do you like hearing from anyone? Uh, and if so, whom? Yeah, you know, it's, I, uh, people can find more information on any things we've talked about at tomrath.org on the web, on the new book, the children's book, the documentary, all those elements. And, you know, I enjoy hearing from um, anyone who's passionate about the same topics and from readers in particular. And as, as I mentioned, I, I really like hearing from parents as, as a parent of a couple of young kids right now. It's, I think that's some of the most rewarding work. And I, it's fun. It's also fun for me to hear from uh, teachers and managers who have people who are just entering their careers, because my, my greatest hope is that we can help people to benefit from some of the great research and science and concepts that are out there even earlier on in their lives, ideally when their kids reading picture books. And if nothing else, by the time they're freshmen in college or graduating from high school, so that they can end up in careers that are a better fit for their talents and passions in the long run. So I'd love to hear more from people along those lines in particular. Terrific. We also have a lot of uh, younger generation like myself. Actually, I'm not young at all, but who are active on Twitter. And you're at Tom C. Rath, correct? Correct. Yeah, that's the social network I spend the most time on. Terrific. Tom, once again, just a real pleasure chatting with you today. And and, uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. Right on. Until next week, everybody, I hope your life's a little smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Thanks to Tom Rath. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.